I think we need to recognize that a lot of what we see on the internet, a lot of what we hear from our politicians and from news is designed to make us hate the other side. That's how people get us to give them money. It's how people get us to buy their books, to watch their shows. Um, And we don't want to be part of a system like that. Also, just interrogate your own perspective. Is it possible that of all the 7 billion people on earth, you are yourself the most right about everything you believe? Is that possible? Yeah, I mean, I guess it is. But if we all if we all believe that, then some of us are wrong. So just be willing to, to question yourself too. Welcome to Grace and 30 on WERALP, Arlington 96.7 FM, and streaming at WERA.FM. This is Ed Mellick, and I'll be your host for the program tonight. Tonight's guest was raised in a secular Jewish home in the San Francisco Bay Area and wound up marrying a woman from rural Arkansas. He recently told me, if you're ripping someone in any number of groups, Jews, Muslims, Evangelicals, Southerners, chances are it's a group that includes someone that I love. Following the 2016 presidential election, Andrew Hanauer felt like he no longer belonged to any traditional political party and that he wanted to be part of something different, something gospel-driven and inclusive. He decided to focus on efforts that combine this desire with his passion for politics and his relationships with a variety of religious leaders. He's currently the president and CEO of One America Movement, an organization founded by faith and community leaders to tackle the division in our society. Andrew joins us to talk about our culture of political contempt and what he and One America are doing to address it. Andrew, welcome to Grace in 30. Thanks, Ed, so much. It's so good to be here with you. So you've said that polarization itself is okay and that the real problem is toxic polarization. What's the difference? Yeah, for sure. So polarization is okay in the sense that polarization just means we disagree. And that's that's good and healthy, right? We don't want to live in a society where nobody disagrees. That would be creepy. It'd be weird. Uh, Oftentimes it would be totalitarian, right? The problem is when our polarization shifts from being, I disagree with you, to I don't like who you are. And what we've seen in this country uh, over the last few decades, and especially over the last five or so years, uh, is that shift. Um, to where we we more and more uh, our polarization is sort of team sport driven, right? It's our team is going to win, your team is going to lose, and that's all that matters. And when that happens, things become, uh, as we call it, toxic. Uh, and it creates more and more problems, and it's how societies really collapse. So you mentioned tipping points. You know, are there certain tipping points beyond which we've actually gone that concern you? Yeah, for sure. So if you think about toxic polarization as a hill and you start off in a healthy society, you're at the top of the hill. And uh, and what you don't want to do is end up at the bottom of the hill because that's where the really bad stuff happens. And the United States, of course, we're not at the bottom of the hill. Uh, we're somewhere on the hill. But the problem is when you pass certain tipping points, things begin to get worse and worse. So when you get to a place where you view the other party as monolithic, and extreme. In other words, they're all the same and they're all extreme. Then it becomes a lot easier to get to a place where you say, you know what, we have to stop them at any cost. Um, And of course, any cost can become a really bad thing, right? So in the United States, we've seen a couple things happen. As I said earlier, we've we've seen our our polarization shift from um, uh, being about ideology to being about identity. Who are we? 
and which team are you on? And the other tipping point we've seen is is the sense of every everyone's identities, because we all have lots of identities, right? I'm a father, I'm a Golden State Warriors fan, I'm a Christian. Um, all of our identities getting sort of morphed into one, what Ezra Klein calls kind of mega identity, which is Team Red or Team Blue. That's all that matters, ultimately, right? Um, if for those of us who affiliate more with the left, right, you hear this a lot, you hear you know, people who are Republicans, who people on the left used to really despise, suddenly the, the question is, well, yeah, yeah, it's okay if they're Republican, are, are they with Trump or not? If they're not with Trump, they're my friend. If they are with Trump, they're the enemy. So this kind of black and white, two teams, you got to pick one or the other, is is a tipping point itself. Because once you get to that place, uh, beating the other team becomes the sole goal. And that's really dangerous. You mentioned in an interview, the Fund for Peace, and that they rank they, they sort of track certain social cohesion indicators. Where are we relative to the rest of the world? Yeah, so um, social cohesion is one of those phrases that that nobody uh, outside of the wonky kind of world that I live in, it, it, it even knows what that means. But it's basically how well are we sticking together as a country, right? Are we tearing each other apart or are we kind of, are we cohesive? Are we a whole? Um, the United States is not the worst in the world in terms of um, how how cohesive we are. Uh, but we are the worst trending. So over the past five years, the United States has the worst trending social cohesion of any country in the world. Uh, we are moving the, 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 the wrong direction faster um, than any other country. Uh, and that is really worrisome. I tell folks too, you know, we work with really smart people, really, really smart people um, who have, who are Americans for the most part and who grew up in America and went to college and then left America and went to go work in war-torn countries around the world, Eastern Europe, um, East Africa, Middle East, et cetera, um, to help resolve conflicts and violence and division in those countries. And the thing that really worries me is that about four or five years ago, they started coming back to the United States to do this work here because they were seeing all the same warning signs here um, that they had seen in other countries earlier. I mean, we don't want to be alarmist, right? It doesn't mean we're on the verge of a genocide or a civil war. It just means we should pay attention and we should act. These things seem to happen insidiously over time. They just they just grow and grow and grow. And one day you wake up and you're like, how did we get here? Yeah. And in, in, in hindsight, you can see a couple of key moments. But when you're going through it, you made decisions that later on you realize were bad. Let's start talking positive. I, I We have interviewed about 150, 160 guests on Grayson 30. And there are certain recurring themes. I call them strands of grace. And one of them that comes up over and over is proximity, which is mm -hmm. you know, just getting close to people that are different than you. You agree with this, but you've said that, that it needs to be done right. So, so what is the correct type of closeness or, or the more effective type? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of pain in the world. Um, there's a lot of suffering. Um, the, more, the more we get uh, proximate, close to that pain, suffering, the more we see it as um, something that's affecting our fellow humans, our friends, our brothers and sisters, as opposed to those people over there somewhere, um, the better the better off we all are. Um, the same is true for uh, combating division, right? You can, in theory, not hate those people who vote for that other person. But when you actually get to meet and, and work with people who are from a different background than you, um, 
it really can be effective in, in changing people's hearts and minds and helping us see that a lot of our divisions are actually false, that we think the people on the other side are more extreme, more uniform, more monolithic, um, more inspired by negative intentions than, than, than they actually are. But there are ways to do that that are more and less effective, and we, we can know that from science and research. So if you sit two people down across a table and you say, all right, argue gun control, but do it in a civil way. What you're really doing is lighting up the part of their brains that associates their identity with I'm on team blue or red in terms of, of this issue. And they see the other person as their political opponent, even if they are you know, having a polite civil conversation. And of course, good things can still come from that, right? You can hear a point that maybe you didn't hear before. You can, you can hear another perspective. But ultimately, you walk out of that meeting and you're on this team and they're on that team. Uh, what we believe is the most effective is when people have a shared goal. I'm a Democrat, you're a Republican, but we both want to help the homeless in our city. We both want to fight the opioid epidemic. Um, when you have that shared goal, that is when uh, you can begin to form new identities together. Uh, and those new identities are what keeps society from falling apart. So it's not just throwing different people together. It's it's getting people together to work on something together and and basically build relationship. This is actually a good segue into what One America Movement does. So why don't you give us the fundamentals on your organization and tell us you know how you do this? How do you bring people together to serve others and and what kind of a difference does that make? Yeah, sure. So uh, you know one of the the key ways we do that is is bringing people together across divides to to do things together. So. Um, uh, usually, uh, evangelical Christian communities, um, uh, Muslim communities, Jewish, um, uh, Christians of different races, uh, etc. We bring them together. There's always a religious divide, but there's also always a political divide. So it's not interfaith work that sort of rests largely on one side of the political spectrum. It's really reaching folks who otherwise had no relationship and, and oftentimes disagree deeply about faith and about politics. Um, and those folks come together and they, they work on something together. Um, the opioid epidemic I mentioned earlier is what we do in West Virginia. Um, we have a project in Houston that's been focused on hurricane relief uh, and other issues around the country. The other thing we do is we, we work with leaders because it's not just about what happens between Group A and Group B. It's also what happens inside Group A. How does the leader of Group A speak to the members of Group A about Group B? or even about what it means to be a member of Group A. So we work with um, pastors, rabbis, um, other religious leaders to help them navigate these issues inside their communities and, uh, and even at a national level. Give me an example of, of impact, because I, we talked a little bit about scaling when we talked on the phone, and you said, well, you got to make sure you're doing the right thing before you scale it. Yeah. And so, so t give us some just basic grassroots examples, one, one or two of of success in this area, and then how you're, you're sort of planning on scaling this whole thing. Yeah. Well, we've pretty much solved polarization at this point, right? Ed? I mean, I think we, we <laughs> got the, maybe I can go do something else with my life. Um, we're done. Yeah, we're exactly. I, I think, I think that, um, we measure success in a few ways, but I think, I think some key examples, um, we have done survey data that shows that the people who participate in our programs, um, uh, have changed their perceptions positively about the, the members of the other faiths. Um, this includes how evangelical Christians feel about Muslims. 
It includes how um, Jewish uh, participants feel about evangelical Christians. Um, across the board, just a just much better uh, sort of sense of who the other group is and positive feelings for them. Um, but what we're also proud of is that we've done that in an environment where a vast majority of our participants um, uh, report hearing viewpoints that they don't normally hear. Um, a vast majority of them say they felt like they, quote, left their bubble. So we're not bringing together people who already are in the choir. We're bringing together people who very much feel like they're getting out of the out of the choir, so to speak, um, and engaging across divides. We, we had one participant, um, a woman who said that she had always believed that Muslims were, um, were, were members of terrorist groups or that their ultimate goal, the ultimate goal of Islam was to, was to commit um, a jihad in her words. Um, and that just having this encounter with Muslims working at a, at a shelter together um, was just really, really um, uh, moving and changing for her. And that's just one example of, of the, that kind of uh, transformation. And do you usually see, I mean, I have to assume that you're encouraging participants and things like that to, to A, continue working with those other people to build friendships and relationships and B, to invite other people into the cause, right? Absolutely. There's no short-termness about this. We believe that this is long-term work and that it has to be in community and relationships. So we, our chapters are built for the long-term. Our, our chapters at this point, some of them are two and a half years old. Um, uh, you know, in some cases they've been through now, um, not only the growth stage, but then like, you know, a midterm election, um, a, a, a pandemic, um, in other cases, they've been through having experienced, you know, um, shootings uh, at synagogues or houses of worship of other kind in the United States and, and building resilience against that kind of hate. Um, uh, by having the relationships with each other, checking in on each other, et cetera. This is long-term work. Um, you cannot do this with with one-time events um, and then you disappear, uh, even though those events can sometimes have a really positive impact, I think, on the people who participate. Um, so we're really in it for the long-term. Um, and we take our cue from local communities. They tell us what they want to do and how they want to do it. We just help them navigate those differences and, and teach them some of the some of the science behind polarization. So you mentioned on your site science. You say you work with academics, neuroscientists, which sounds very impressive, experts in conflict prevention, identity formation, psychology. You mentioned the surveys. That's really kind of a scientific approach to say, hey, can we measure what we're actually doing? Any other things of note that are like, wow, this is really cool what we're doing in terms of applying scientific principles to this work? Well, first of all, I would say um, two things I think are really important. The first is that um, there's an old story that, that my neuroscientist Christian friend likes to tell about um, what it's like to be a scientist. He says, being a scientist is like climbing a sheer rock cliff. You climb and you climb and you don't know where you're going. You don't know where it's going to end up. You don't know how, um, how far you have to go. And when you finally get to the top and you pull yourself up onto the ledge, uh, you find a theologian waiting for you there. And, you know, he talks about how uh, it's a good story, right? But it's also true. He talks about the passage in John, um, in, in the book of John, that talks about how um, only a, a perfect love casts out fear. And uh, this, is, this is from our scriptures 2,000 years ago. It's also neuroscientifically correct. Um, the, the chemicals you release in your brain um, when you're touched affectionately by someone you love um, actually suppress the chemicals associated with fear and stress. 
So in many ways, you know, this whole battle between science and faith, we don't buy that. We believe that science is is in many ways illuminating things that that our scriptures have been talking about for thousands of years. The second thing I would say is that there's a way to manipulate people with science that we want nothing to do with. And that has been done for a long time. Science has been used for very, very bad reasons, uh, in addition to being used, obviously, for a lot of really good reasons. Um, uh, but we don't want to um, treat our participants, our, our partners, our, our faith faith partners, um, uh, by sort of you know having the science stuff and then using it on them. We want nothing to do with that. So what we do is we empower people with it. We give them the science themselves. We say, here's what's going on in your brain when you hear an opinion you don't like. Um, Here's what's happening when you see a symbol you love desecrated in some way. And, uh, And then we let them take that knowledge and make them more able to sort of navigate these issues because of that. You wrote an article in USA Today recently. And you said, as we isolate ourselves in our homes, it's reasonable to expect that we'll spend even more time yelling at each other online, clicking depressing new links, and watching talking heads pontificate endlessly. You were talking about the isolation, the quarantines of of COVID, and I wanted to kind of draw out of you, what can we do to make this COVID-19 experience positive? How can we take this unique unique situation? I've, I've read a book recently called a beautiful constraint. And they talk about taking something that people initially react to as negative and, and constraining and seeing the beauty and the opportunity in that. So what would you challenge people to do right now to try to you know, bridge these divides while we're, many of us are isolated? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, the, the reality is that um, uh, this uh, two things can be, can be true at the same time, right? This can be a devastating pandemic that's costing tens of thousands of people in our country their lives and 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 you know deeply harming our economy and people are losing their jobs and child abuse is up and all this stuff um, that is all true and as individuals we still have choices to make about um, our actions and how we use this time you know for me personally I've spent a lot more quality time with my kids than I was when I was flying around the country, doing my job and, and all the things that were sort of expected of me as part of that. And I'm really grateful for that. And I, I think it will impact how I balance work life um, when I go back to, when things go back to the way um, they, they were, if, if that ever happens. I think that we have also a, a, a greater appreciation for the toxicity of our internet, of our political system, um, I think in the midst of a pandemic with people dying, people losing their jobs, hearing this sort of divisiveness, it, it's almost more transparently obvious what, what that is. It, it's perverse. Um, it, is t- it is turning us on each other for profit, for political gain, for power, for money. It's, it's sick. Um, and I think now more than ever, Americans want politicians to, uh, frankly, to close their mouths get to work, um, figure it out, and do the best they can. And I think a lot of our, our leaders really are doing that. So I think um, for, for, for folks, just you know, recognize that what you're reading on your, uh, on your phones, et cetera, the, the negative news, the misinformation, um, the divisiveness, it, it's not healthy. Um, and we need, we need to be aware of that uh, during this p- pandemic when we're stuck at home. We need to be aware of it after, this, after the stay-at-home stuff ends. Yeah. And you mentioned in the article, you said, you know, imagine 
if we filled the internet with love and hope and goodness, if we ordered groceries for our neighbor, if yeah. uh, people live, living on the other side of town, imagine if we just checked on each other, just give a phone call. You know, we're so used to sending text messages and yeah. emails. <laughs> and, and that's almost like, I care, but I really don't care enough to get bogged down on the phone with you. You know, I'm going yeah, exactly. to send, send you a... So I've been calling people that I know I'm like, oh boy, that's going to be a big one, but I'm going to call them and I'm going to talk to them and catch up with them and then periodically reconnect with them. Those are a couple good things or any others you can add to that? Cause that's, that's a good list in and of itself. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it is a good list. I think, um, uh, listen to others and find out what their needs are. Right. So some people, uh, need food. Some people need money. Uh, some organizations need money. Some need donations of supplies, right? It, let's try to be helpful. We know we always know in these disaster scenarios where um, people send uh, all their donations down to some area that's been hit by a hurricane and they're flooded with donations of shoes when what they really need is water or something like that, right? So let's be in relationship with the people we, we are helping if we are fortunate enough to be in a position to help others. Um, I also just want to say, I think, you know, uh, from a spiritual perspective, um, any any sort of brokenness in our relationships um, is is a huge problem, and it's 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 present in the world in so many ways. Polarization, the kind of toxic polarization that we work on, is just another form of a sort of brokenness in 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 a relationship between human beings. And I think um, if we can focus during this pandemic on sort of restoring some of the relationships in our lives. Um, then at least that will be stronger when we all emerge from this and need to get to work to rebuild our country. I've heard you talk about key myths that need to be dispelled. And one of them is that people, we think that people who disagree with us also agree with the loudest, most divisive people on their side, on the other side. Share your thoughts about that with us. Yeah, for sure. So this is this is really important stuff. And it's really fascinating, too, because it gets not just into neuroscience, but how Human beings are wired to live in the, in the world. So imagine a group of 10 people and two of them start advocating loudly for going and committing violence against some other group. And one of the 10 people says, no, no, this is wrong. We should do it. And those first two people, you know, shout them down and, and, and basically say, get out of the group. You're not a member of our group anymore. The other seven people are see that and they stay silent because they don't want to get kicked out of their group. They're terrified of, of leaving their group. They're also, they don't know what their other six friends are thinking, right? If you're one of those seven silent people, um, if you speak out like the first person did, maybe you get kicked out. And as it turns out, the other seven people were all in agreement or whatever it is, and you're going to be left you know, alone. So, so they're, they're silent. So now how does the other group see this? Well, people who are not in that group, they don't see 10 people who are, uh, most of whom are silent and one of whom you know, spoke out in dissent, they see 10, they see nine people now who are in agreement with those loud divisive voices. And this creates a, a feedback loop where they then see that group as, as hateful and, and, and needing to be stopped. And so they take actions accordingly. And then that leads to a further and further escalation. This is how groups work. Most people are silent and they don't know where they fit in. The loudest voices dominate and the people on the other side think that those loud voices represent all those silent people when they don't. So it's really important that we understand that when, I mean, you know, you hear people say things like liberals or socialists or Trump supporters or any of these labels. I mean, Trump supporters, there's 60 million people who voted for Donald Trump. It is 
uh, logically absurd to think that all 60 million uh, agree with or think the same way on anything. Um, and so it's really important to, to dispel that rumor and to really get into how groups work rather than just assume that groups are all um, monolithic. And what are a couple of the other myths? Sure. So we think um, uh, the other side is motivated by negative things. So it's, it's sort of this, um, uh, you know, if you ever get cut off in traffic, right? You think, gosh, that person was such a jerk. They're selfish. They just want to get ahead. They, they're, they're not even paying attention. They were probably texting. You go through all those things in your head and you might completely be right. But then you have to ask yourself, have you ever cut anyone off in traffic? Why? Why'd you do it? Right? Oh, the kid was crying in the back seat. I was distracted. It was late, you know. So we do this in politics too. It turns out that we are absurdly incorrect about our views of the other group in terms of what motivates them. So people who are pro gun control think that uh, gun rights advocates are motivated by negative things that are not true, and vice versa. Um, and so when you when you just correct that, you can still disagree. But know that the person you're disagreeing with is is much less likely to be uh, hostile or hateful than you think. At one point, you said I, I read something. You said we're wired to believe our side acts out of love, and the other side acts out of hate. Exactly. That's that's another myth, right? That we we sort of assign negative motivations to the other side and righteous ones to our own. It, absolutely, and in fact, we use that. Uh, it goes further into sort of into something we call the halo effect. So there's this sense that. Um, we are more willing to accept policies and things we might not otherwise agree with if the people we trust are the ones doing it. So, for instance, uh, Democrats were very opposed to NSA surveillance when uh, President Bush was president. And then when President Obama became president, they basically flipped their opinion entirely. And so it went from two-thirds against to two-thirds for. Um, and same is true for Republicans. They were, they were very much against uh, bombing Syria um, when President Obama was in office, and then when when President Trump took over, uh, it became like eighty percent supported it. And so, this idea that um, we are uh, uh, willing to change our minds about what we claim we believe simply based on which team is doing it, um, and that that points to a huge sort of uh, a breakage in our <laughs> in our logical framework that we need to work on. Yeah, it's funny. I did a I like data analysis, and I. I I gathered all the scriptures where Jesus really pounded on people. And I was like, well, who was he hitting up and what was he saying about them? And the vast, vast majority was he was cracking on hypocrisy of the leadership. And it, and we're seeing this at such a level today, it's ridiculous. Is there anything that you want to make sure, is there something you make sure you say to everybody these days? If you don't say anything else, you're stuck on an elevator or whatever. <laughs> this is the point you want to convey to people. What is that point? I think... Um the, the most important thing I think to convey is um, don't be manipulated and don't, um, and don't be um, so willing to judge others without also looking at your own actions and belief systems. Um, it doesn't mean you, you give up your convictions. It doesn't mean you, you come to some sort of mushy purple middle. I don't think that's the point of any of this. I think we need to recognize that a lot of what we see on the internet, a lot of what we hear from our politicians and from news is designed to make us hate the other side. That's how people get us to give them money. It's how people get us to buy their books, to watch their shows. Um, and we don't want to be part of a system like that. Um, and then, you know, also just interrogate 
your own perspective. Is it possible that of all the 7 billion people on earth, you are yourself the most right about everything you believe? Is that possible? Yeah, I mean, I guess it is. But if we all if we all believe that, then some of us are wrong. So just be willing to, to question yourself too. Thank you so much, Andy, for joining us. If listeners would like to find out more about One America Movement, check them out on the web at oneamericamovement.org. This is Ed and Andrew signing off from Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great night and be sure to tune into Grace.